This is More in the Morning on News Talk 1010 Toronto. 7.06 on a Friday morning, and it is indeed a sweet, sweet Friday. It's a sweet, sweet Friday! Looking forward to the weekend. And I don't know, maybe it's because this week was full of a lot of variety for me, but it seems to have gone by quickly. I mean, they always say a change is as good as a rest. And flip-flopping on Wednesday was an awful lot of fun. And returning to the afternoon show... I always loved doing the afternoon show. It was a really, really comfortable fit. And I don't think I'm exactly, you know, telling tales at a school or whatever expression you might use, but I enjoy the morning show. The morning show is the show that anybody in radio wants to be on, but getting up at two o'clock in the morning is not a hell of a lot of fun. You know, we went out for dinner because I did the afternoon show on Wednesday, which was Valentine's Day, and we went out for dinner. And owing to timing, I didn't get to bed until about 10 o'clock. And that really turns everything upside down because honestly, you need every minute of sleep you can possibly get. So lifestyle wise, the morning show sucks, but I love being with you here in the mornings. But boy, was it fun to go back to afternoons. Those were um, very, very fun years. And I'll never know how many people now, how many of you listening right now, for example, were listening back in the day when I was doing afternoons. Um, but it, it, was, it was fun. I thought it was a pretty good show. Numbers were good. And after all, it got me into the morning show. So uh, here we are. Toronto Police Association, I won't say are taking a victory lap because all they did was send a memo out to their members. But effectively, they're celebrating the fact that the police department got all the money it was looking for. And I characterized this when I was talking to Myron Demkew, the chief of police, as good cop, bad cop. He played the good cop. He just got out in front of the microphones and said, here's what we need. Here's why we need this money. Here's what I'm going to do with the money. And then the police association took out those ads where you've got a woman. I mean, the, the sort of mental image is that she's hiding in her shuttered closet whispering into her phone because somebody's coming to kill her and they say, nah, can't find anybody to come and help. Sorry. The other ad, I think there were only two. The other ad was a woman calling to say that she couldn't see her daughter. And it sounds like she's in a park and her daughter has disappeared. And, you know, somebody in authority can correct me if I'm wrong. You can always text me. I'm always ready to be corrected at 7, 10, 10. But I'm not aware that if you can't see your kid, you can immediately call 911 and they're going to deploy officers to the field to go and look for your kid. Traditionally, somebody has to be missing for a certain period of time. I don't want to mock the idea that it would be terrifying to lose sight of your kid. I just want to say that as an example of the slow response rate of Toronto Police Service, it might not have been the best one. But hey, parents in distress, that's pretty visceral stuff. But I will congratulate Chief Demkew and the police association because they got everything they were looking for. Now comes the tough work because now that Chief Demkew has all of the money that the police board had recommended, then, you know, and the, the mayor was pretty uh, authoritative about this yesterday or declarative about it yesterday. She said, okay, now you got to deliver, you know. If we're at 22 minutes for a response time and I gave you this much money and you said this is what you needed, then you better bring that response time down. And Myron Demkew said that he didn't pledge, but he said that was 
the where they were headed, let's just say, that, okay, we've got the money, we're going to hire the officers. An interesting line of um, discussion during our, our interview yesterday was how long does it take to make a cop? Sort of thinking of Westworld, you know, where we could hatch them out of some sort of a form and then activate them as robots, but that's not the way it works. And the thing is, first you got to recruit somebody, then you got to put them in police uh, college, which takes six months of uh, study and I guess work on the shooting range amongst other things. I don't know if they do stunt driving, they must. And then there's all kinds of other stuff of screening and psychological profiling and background checking to make sure you're not hiring somebody with some sort of nefarious criminal record. And so it takes a considerable amount of time actually to create a new police officer. Reading this morning, in the wake of property taxes being boosted by 9.5%, that more Torontonians are applying for property tax relief. And again, to come back to conversations we had on our show yesterday, Olivia Chow was talking about the fact that if your property taxes are more than you can make, then there are programs. Almost 8,300 homeowners successfully applied for Toronto's property tax increase cancellation program in 2023. And you have to think that more people are going to apply now, that property taxes are going up. I've got only one note on this. I have no issue with there being relief for people who can't afford their property taxes, except there is a situation where seniors who are on limited budgets are living in homes that they plan to leave to their kids. And so there you are living in a home on a limited budget, yes, that is worth, you know, 1.5, 2 million, 2.5 million, whatever. Your kids are rubbing their hands together because they're going to get the home and they're going to sell it and pocket the money. And you are pleading poverty on your property taxes. So in those situations, maybe the kids should be paying the property taxes. Yesterday, the provincial government announced Fraptious Joy Kalu Calais that they were banning tolls on all public highways in Ontario. I am pleased to announce that our government is introducing legislation that would, if passed, ban tolls on provincial highways. That would not only apply to the DVP and Gardner Expressway only minutes away from here, but also to the province's 400 series highways. It's not only families that benefit from fewer tolls. Road tolls, add to the price of commercial goods, and that cost is then reflected in the prices you see on store shelves. Okay. I mean, you know, they also plan to pass legislation to ban publicly funded clown schools. I mean, they were not going to have tolls. It's a nice signal. I don't know why we need legislation for it. And if you want to get into public expenditures, then you can talk about the 413. 413 new roadway that is going to cost billions that an auditor has already said is not necessary and yet we're going to build it anyway so if we're getting into declarations grand declarations about trying to save money for taxpayers maybe we shouldn't be building a highway that has been established to be unnecessary 
I was talking just before the news at seven about Wab Canoe, who incidentally is the most popular premier amongst his own people, but he has the best approval ratings in Canada. He's the premier of Manitoba. Also an old friend, so I'm I'm excited. I say the older you get, the more you know people who have done well in life. And to have met Wab Canoe when he was a rapper and a show host at the CBC. And to now see him as not only elected premier of Manitoba, but at the moment still in his honeymoon is really kind of exciting. But this is the issue, and it is beyond a debatable, and it's on the agenda, obviously, for the roundtable at 745. But there are thought to be two indigenous women who were murdered. Their bodies are thought to be in a landfill in Manitoba. And the debate has been over whether or not to launch the effort to try to recover their bodies. And the thing is, it's going to take time. It may not succeed. And it is going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. But to all those people saying, who cares? Here's what I would offer. How much do we continue to spend more than 100 years after the end of the First World War to recover the bodies of Canadian soldiers in Europe? We search for them, we recover them, we identify them, we give them military funerals. And that is something I've talked about on many an occasion because I think that is worthy and I think that is what a good country does. So if we're going to search for those dead soldiers from 100 years ago who nobody remembers, why would we leave the bodies of two women in a dump for eternity? It's a tragic but also somewhat historic death the death of uh, Alexei Navalny, the guy, the only guy really who was a serious threat to Vladimir Putin, and he has died in prison where he should not have been. His only offense was going up against Vladimir Putin. Uh, he has died at the age of 47. We are going to be speaking with an international security expert, a Russia expert at 735. We should probably track down Bill Browder. Uh, Bill Browder is a guy who's written two books. He made his, all of it, I mean, he was a multimillionaire thanks to his investments and his work in Russia. But then he crossed Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin tried to have him imprisoned, but he escaped. And then Vladimir Putin actually tried to kidnap him, even though he wasn't in Russia anymore. And that is just how bloodthirsty and villainous Vladimir Putin is. I don't know why he has fans in the West, but he does. I guess it's out of need. You know, the unfortunate thing about a lot of politics these days and the positions that people take is they take positions that they would not normally take because their opponents have taken opposing positions. So the, you know, the Western left is big on trying to defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. Ergo, some on the right have decided Vladimir Putin must be a hero. So let's make Vladimir Putin the hero and let's make uh, Zelensky some kind of a villain. And with Navalny, it's just, it, you know, I don't know who opposes Vladimir Putin anymore. I mean, Tucker Carlson is still in Russia trying to uh, make him his best friend. Let's turn to other affairs in other countries, as a matter of fact. I'm always happy on a Friday morning to say hi to W5 investigative correspondent and managing editor Avery Haynes. Hi there. Good morning, John. So this story is about uh, a mine and an uprising and you getting tear gassed, and we'll get to that shortly, in <laughs> Panama. But set the table for me. What's, what's this story about? 
Well, most people think of Panama. I mean, it's a, it's really booming now as an expat community for people who want to retire from Canada and take in the extraordinary jungle and beaches and all the rest of it. Um, for a matter of a number of weeks, the entire country ground to a halt. There were blockades at every uh, highway, uh, Schools were shut down, and it was all part of an uprising against a Canadian mine, one of the largest copper mines in the world, uh, First Quantum Minerals, which is plunked right in the midst of Panama's extraordinary uh, jungle. And the government had decided to extend its contract by 20 years. And the people revolted, and it led to lots of violence. We have just this extraordinary video of uh, blockades triggering so much unrest that somebody got out of his car and started opening fire on protesters. There was tear gassing, of which I got caught up in. Right. Um, fishermen were holding uh, holding this, this um, protest at the port, and so blocking any fuel from coming into the, to the port. And, and they were successful. The mine has been shut down. And our investigation looks not only at the allegations from environmentalists against the Canadian mine, but the potential environmental catastrophe that now is a factor, given the fact that uh, a mine cannot just sit empty. Okay, so, I mean, what was the, the, the essence, I guess we could say, of the complaint against this mine and against this company and against this Canadian company? Well, the allegation was that this was kind of a hush backroom deal to extend it by 20 years, that the public was not consulted. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the people that the contract was un unconstitutional. And the government, in the midst of all of this, you know, did an extraordinary thing in, in putting out a moratorium on all new mining in Panama. So a number of countries are now saying we don't want to make our money, Costa Rica being one of them, off of mining. We want to instead harness nature and, and not have mines in our country. But, it you know, this company, First Quantum, represented 5% of Panama's GDP. It employed thousands of people who are now out of work. And so there are lots of issues that, that arise from this. But part of our investigation, because it, it was interesting being a Canadian and hearing so much rage against this Canadian company. And so we did some digging into First Quantum. And, and I'll just say it's represented as a Canadian company. I had to fly to England to interview the CEO who is Australian. And so there's a very interesting dynamic that's happening where there are many, many companies that are registered as being Canadian, but, you know, you wouldn't necessarily consider them a Canadian company. Okay. And what's it like to be tear gassed? I have uh, covered many a riot, but I've never been tear gassed. You know, I have been in war zones before, right at the front line. I also had never been tear gassed before. And I'll say it is not pleasant. We, uh, we spent some time at the University of Panama. The students took over their university and put a blockade around it and lived in there for weeks. And outside were riot police and they'd get into these, they'd do their studies during the day online and then get into these battles with police by throwing rocks at them. And then the police would, would send tear gas back. So yeah, we got caught in the middle of it 
got tear gassed. Uh, we capsized, almost capsized at sea going out to this protest. We had a one of our, our drone was shot out of the sky and <laughs> by a slingshot. It was, uh, <laughs> it had its moments. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> hey, the adventures of an international correspondent. Thank you. Good to have you, Avery. My pleasure, John. Okay, Thanks. Avery Haynes from W5, which airs on Saturday at 7 p.m. Pierre Polyev, let's face it, is the prime minister in waiting. I don't see any other scenario uh, than him being elected and with a majority government, which we haven't had for two sessions. So he's starting to map things out for you so you know what his administration is going to look like. One thing he says is he's going to end wasteful foreign aid. Now, it doesn't mean all foreign aid, but wasteful foreign aid, he says. And he's going to increase funding for the Canadian military. He wants to get up to the NATO threshold. And the NATO threshold is this. You have to spend 2% of your GDP on defense. And can we disavow once and for all? Can, can we get away from this silly idea that NATO is this pot of money that you pay into and some people are in arrears for their dues. That's not how it works. You vow to spend, and actually I was looking at the details of this recently. It's a very loose vow. It's not a, like a promise, I swear. In, and it only when they made this promise, I think in like 2015, it was that by 2024, they would try to spend 2% on national defense. And there are a lot of arguments about this. I mean, we do border on Russia, but I really don't think they're going to launch a northern invasion. But who knows? Uh, and we have very much piggybacked on the Americans, always believing that if there was ever a national security threat in Canada, that the Americans, the largest military in the history of the world, would come to our defense. So, yeah, we've been laggards. But at the same time, it's no small commitment to spend 2% of your GDP on a budget envelope that actually has little, if any, application outside of being in a ready posture. But still, Pierre Polyev says he's going to uh, try to meet that goal. Meanwhile, I love this story. I love any customer complaint story, because then I can wave my paper like this, like Pat Foran, and say, on your side. But this is a story about a guy who had to fly to his grandmother's funeral. And you've probably heard that if you ask, you will get a discount on airfare if you are going to a funeral. So this guy actually went online and he was interacting with a bot. So basically artificial intelligence. And he asked about the bereavement discount and the bot told him, you'll get it. So he bought a ticket. He flew to his grandmother's funeral, flies home, then goes to Air Canada customer service and says, I'd like my bereavement discount. They say no. He says, well, I was interacting on the, online and I was told I could get it. They said, yeah, that was a robot. And was, who cares? So he went to a tribunal and the tribunal has ordered Air Canada to pay up. And there are many, many consumer implications to this. But more importantly, I would say, wait a second, you decided to technologize something and hand it over to artificial intelligence, and now you are not willing to honor the deal that artificial intelligence made. 
if we're going to be moving into this great grim future of computers making decisions for us, then corporations that rely on those computers, which, you know, this was replacing somebody who would have made $55,000 a year, then, you know, corporations had better pony up. You're listening to More in the Morning on News Talk 1010. Toronto. Alexei Navalny, who they keep on calling him the opposition leader, but that's only kind of by default. I mean, he's just the guy who decided to oppose in a sort of Nelson Mandela way, um, Vladimir Putin. And he is dead in prison at the age of 47. Here was some perspective on this story, which really honestly is uh, a bit of an historic occasion. I mean, when the only person who has been able to put Vladimir Putin to shame is dead, then the circumstances, the chessboard has significantly changed. Kimberly St. Julian Varnon joins us, an academic and regional expert working on Russia and the Soviet Union in East Germany, and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Do we know anything about the circumstances? I mean, I guess we should start with how long he's been behind bars, why, and what may have happened. So Alexei Navalny, probably the most famous Russian opposition leader, has been in prison for about three years now um, on trumped-up charges, essentially. But really, this goes back to uh, August 2020 when he was poisoned and people presumed by the Russian government. Um, he went to Germany for treatment, and then he very bravely decided to come back to Russia, in which he faced these trumped-up charges, and he was put in prison. Then August 2023, he was given another 19 years uh, to top off the, on the trumped-up charges. And so what happened was about two hours ago, the federal penitentiary service in Russia reported that Navalny was going for a walk. He felt unwell and almost immediately he lost consciousness and that um, emergency teams tried to resuscitate him. But all those resuscitation attempts were not successful. Um, You also have Russian state media saying that he died from a detached blood clot. And so they're trying to discuss it as this is just a normal, you know, random medical event and Navalny died. But um, some reporters from the BBC have posted videos of Navalny speaking in from his prison cell in the penal colony as of yesterday, where he looks completely healthy. And he's joking and, you know, has a sense of, of humor. So a lot of things are up in the air right now. And I mean, the latest reports um, say that he died around 2.15pm Moscow time. So you know, just about an hour ago. So this is all very fresh. Now, aside from haunting Vladimir Putin, I don't know that he was that much of a threat to Vladimir Putin, but does this check, (laughs) does this change the arithmetic, the political arithmetic in Russia? You know, I'm not sure. Navalny was facing well over, you know, 20 years in prison based on anti, what they call extremist activities, essentially because he was investigating corruption. In Russia, that was a threat to Putin. But I really think after Navalny's death and Putin's current war in Ukraine and just his ability to skirt by on international law against domestic uh, repression, I don't know if we have a good overview and a good outlook for the Russian opposition at this moment. If you are going to go against Vladimir Putin, you are literally putting your hands in the life, uh, your, your life in the hands of someone who is a, you know, a former KGB thug. 
And yeah. Navalny was brave, but Navalny's still dead. And yeah. I think that's something people are going to have to grapple with. Okay, I mean, I, I guess maybe it doesn't tell us anything more about Vladimir Putin. We know he's murdered people before. We don't know he directly murdered mm -hmm. uh, Navalny. But it's just in, in modern times, there haven't been a lot of dictators like this. Incredibly so. I mean, between Prigozhin's plane suddenly going down, uh, you know, weeks after he tried to lead a military coup, and now this, it's very clear that Vladimir Putin can behave lawlessly and he is not going to be held responsible. Sanctions or no sanctions, Nord Stream 2 or no Nord Stream 2, Vladimir Putin is behaving really in a way we haven't seen since the Soviet period. I mean, not even Brezhnev behaved this way. We're going back to Stalinism in which the a Russian leader can be so careless and callous with how he treats human life. Thank you for this. It's a sad day. Yes, it is. Thank you. Kimber Saint, uh, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon is an expert on Russia and East Germany and uh, joined us this morning on a story that broke only about 45 minutes ago. But uh, Alexei Navalny, who was considered to be the one guy who could be somehow seen as a rival to Vladimir Putin, dead at the age of 47. On round one, Vas Bednar is here, executive director of the Master of Public Policy degree in Digital Society at McMaster University. Toronto-based lawyer Courtney Betty of the delightfully named Betty's Law. And Jerry Agar from The Jerry Agar Show, 10 to noon, right here on News Talk 1010. Happy Friday to you all. Let's start with this study, and we'll know more about it at 8.05 when we talk to the study author. But it suggests that we may have overdone things when it comes to school clothes. Now, I do think it's notable that they say masking and vaccines and staying at home when you're sick were just as good. So the vaccine was not available in 2020. But let me start with Courtney Betty on this one. What's your reaction? Well, John, there's a lot, you know, in terms of the whole process of what we went through dealing with the COVID uh, pandemic, there's a lot of questions that's going to be asked, um, whether it be in the school scenario in the employment scenario, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough one because there's so much that we didn't know at the time. So it's a little bit easier to say hindsight, we could have done things differently, um, you know, but at the end of the day, there's just so much information that we did not have. Vas Bednar, I'm already hearing from them, lots of anti-vaxxers and convoy types are saying, see, I told you so. I'm not sure that's the full takeaway from this study. I think you're right. I mean, that caveat, when infection pre prevention control measures were in place, schools were not a significant source of transmission. So that's not saying that schools weren't a significant source of transmission. But uh, when we had masking, when we had air purifiers, et cetera, et cetera, we were able to kind of minimize that risk. And, uh, you know, putting this in context and putting it in comparison to the mandatory quarantining and the isolation and stress that people felt, I think, is, is an important caveat. Jerry Agar, we lost 135 school days. Deb Hutton on the morning brief at 620 was totally steamed because she has two girls who are in uh -huh. the school system and she feels that they were sort of permanently damaged by this. Well, uh, I don't disagree with what uh, Courtney said in terms of, look, hindsight is always 2020. Um, so we have to be careful how much blame we put. But 
Far be it for me to be the person to defend the anti-vaxxers. But we did know that children were not the ones in danger or the ones transmitting the disease. We did know that. I can't, I can't tell you how many times we talked about that. So I understand that sentiment as well. Although the problem... Yeah, well, just to, yeah go ahead, Courtney. Just to, add on, just to add there, John, one of the things that I thought was also interesting about the report is the impact on, let's say, minority communities or low-income communities. And that is an issue that we still need to look at and address in terms of trying to make sure that, you know, the kind of educational losses that those communities suffered during this period, we find a way to, uh, to you know, to continually come up with some solutions for these communities. Ford administration says there will be no highway tolls. As a matter of fact, they're going to pass a law against them. Jerry, they're passing a law against something they weren't going to do. <laughs> well, just to make sure, because, you know, uh, who knows what the liberals will come up with once they get uh, Bunny Crombie elected and in place and, you know, all of you that. You think that's so, going to happen? There's th Look, there's a lot of running around right now with the uh, conservatives making all kinds of announcements where we're going to save you money here, save you money there. That's that's uh, going on at a steady pace right now. Uh, you know what the first thing a lot of people would do. It's what I did. Yeah, does this apply to the 407? Uh, sadly, no. No. And Courtney Betty, to come back to you, uh, 407 will forever be a thorn in our sides. We built it. We sold it for a song. They said they wouldn't raise the uh, uh, tolls. They raised the tolls. It's forever annoying. Oh, it, well, that's part of it, John. But it's really interesting that we're passing a law to say we're not going to do something in the future, which is kind of interesting rather than saying, hey, you know what? We're going to get rid of the toll right now, which really should be the, the news of the day or have some impact. If we really want to impact on what people are, the cost of living, then why not deal with the situation that we have right now? And Vez Bednar, I should be more specific. Actually, we didn't sell it. We leased it until a time uh, where even you as the youngest person on this panel will be dead. No even even I, even my friends and I, my friends and I studied that highway as like a major policy failure. So don't don't worry, I'm still with it. I can fit in here. Look, the permanent freeze on driver's license uh, and and photo card fees is also intriguing, right? It's just like why can't there be any flexibility here? Why wouldn't these potentially? go up with inflation? Or can we just have a more frank conversation about fees that governments charge writ large? And maybe because we're able to, you know, update through Service Canada and have kind of digital options, maybe these fees should actually come down. Maybe the cost of processing is actually not as high. I just renewed my driver's license um, and it was 90 bones. And it's like, I would love a bit more information about where that $90 goes and maybe it shouldn't be as expensive as it is. That's just a different conversation than saying we're going to freeze these quote unquote forever. Toronto Police Association sent an, a memo to its members saying, hey, look at us. We did it. And uh, Jerry, I'll, I'll start with you on this one because I keep arguing this is part of the power of radio. Those were very effective radio commercials the police association ran. And I think when they started running, it was inevitable that uh, the mayor was going to have to fold on the police budget. Well, and when as an organization you achieve what you wanted to achieve, um, you're, you're going to talk about it to some degree. This was an internal memo, but when you send an internal memo to as many people as the Toronto police... It's going to get leaked. It's going to get leaked. The politicians <laughs> are going to see it. The media is going to see it. Uh, so you have to be careful how you word it because this is going to come off to a lot of people as kind of crowing, you know? Well, you know, maybe they should crow. Vass, what do you think? I don't think they should crow. I mean, I think it's very tempting and exciting to try to 
claim that investments you made in social media and kind of air war campaigns paid off in the end, but it's very difficult to actually know that something was causal. Courtney, Betty, I've said this was a good cop, bad cop operation. The chief gave very measured interviews about why he needed the money. And then the association told us we were going to be stabbed to death in our homes. Yeah, it was a, you know, a very intense campaign. But John, you know, the police association in Toronto, number one, has always had these very creative campaigns. If you remember going back, looking at baseball hats, etc. But, you know, I said that, you know, the budget for the mayor uh, was a tapestry. I think that her backing down on this issue, I think this was an error. I really think that the police union should have tried, the police association should have tried to figure out how they could find $12 million and uh, also keep the community community programs going. To me, that uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, a challenge for the mayor to make this decision. Air Canada is has been found by a tribunal to be responsible for a chatbot's mistake. Let me map this all out. And then I know, Vaz, you're excited about this because it's mm-hmm. more than in your wheelhouse. It is your wheelhouse. I'm um, a chatbot. Yeah. This is <laughs> the story of a man who was going to his grandmother's funeral and he wanted to know if they actually do offer bereavement discounts. And the chatbot said yes. And then later he filed for his rebate and Air Canada said, you don't get it. And they said, it was, you know, it was a chatbot. It's not us. So, Vass, I think, sorry, if you're going to rely on technology, if you're going to put humans out of business and replace them with technology, then you're responsible for everything that technology does. Well, yeah, the company trying to absolve themselves of any responsibility and, you know, Courtney will appreciate the nuances of this uh, more effectively than me. But Air Canada has also tried to say that, you know, you can't hold our company responsible for what our human agents tell you. You know, don't, you know, that's that's on that's on them. That's on who, you know, this kind of platform accountability. It's it's just just what people on our platform say, not not really us. So I appreciated that. Yeah, if you're going to be offloading your customer service to chatbots and they're going to be providing people with information, then you're going to need to be able to stand behind that. And I think this guy, this young guy did everything correctly. You know, he asked his questions, he got the information, he screenshotted it, he followed up to to get a partial rebate. And then the fact that the company was like, no, <laughs> is is, I think, comical. And I'm really glad he brought it forward as a case because this seems like a, a good hinge for the future of synthetic communication. Courtney, I realize it's a tribunal, but does this become case law? Well, John, that's the big issue right now. The whole argument that's saying that a bot is now a separate individual or a separate entity, I have no idea what your Canada was thinking in making those arguments. I have no idea it's why they Canada. would wait. wait. Where we yeah, waste the time to make those arguments over six hundred and eighty nine dollars for bereavement. It really mm. if you if you if you follow the logic of their argument, it just opens up a whole new set of legal issues. I think this customer um, was lucky and smart that he did the screenshot because without that, he wouldn't have had any proof that he had been yeah. told by the bot that he could do what he wanted to do. Really quickly, I had a, I was going back and forth with a company I do business with on a regular basis, and I was really unhappy about something. And I, I got a person, not a bot. I eventually got a person. I, I was chatting online, but I, it was a person. And they said, well, if you do this and you do this and you pay this much a month, then it's all going to work out for you. And I said, frankly, I don't really trust you all that much at this point. Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, I said that, and but you're telling me blah, 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 and they said yes you know, to all of this, and then I clicked on save this conversation um, in case mm. it didn't work out. In this particular case, finally, it did work out, but I saved all of that for this reason. I'm very curious to hear what you have to say, because this is such a, a disturbing issue. But uh, Wab Canoe, Premier of Manitoba, he promised this in the election campaign, and he's following through. He's going to spend millions of dollars searching a landfill for the bodies of two Indigenous women who are believed to have been murdered and put in that landfill. Courtney Betty, a lot of people would say, well, you know, it's a lot of money. But, I mean, providing dignity to two murdered women who would rest for eternity in a dump might be worth the price um it's it's more the symbolism of it john and, and it, it is a really i think tough decision but part of it i believe is also showing some respect to the indigenous community not just this specific incident um but it, it's a it's a very tough decision yeah. Jerry Agar, I had a text from somebody saying, well, Wab Canoe's indigenous. He wouldn't search for a white person. I don't think we can conclude that. Does this person a relative of Wab Canoe's? Does this person know Wab Canoe? The person who texted me? Yeah. No. No, of course not. No, of course. Uh, Everyone uh, has an opinion when it comes to indigenous people. Sometimes these investigations are very expensive, and this is why police need money. There you go. Although, Vas Bednar, it's not a police operation. Well, sure it is. No. Well, there's still there's still criticisms, right, that there's an absence of First Nation representation in meetings or involvements in, in discussions. So sometimes I think we can also look at this case and it's like they're trying to move forward. The search could cost 90 million or more. And yet, you know, procedurally or one aspect is still it's not enough or it's not proper or it's not a way that, you know, people hoped for this process to go forward. So it, I think even even with this expenditure and investment, with the time delay and with the way it's moved forward, it could still be disappointing for people. And that's something else we have to pay attention to and really think about. By the way, having jumped all over your texter, I would say this, as a Manitoban, yeah. I was uh, born and grew up in Manitoba, uh, that province has a troublesome relationship with Indigenous populations. Oh, yeah. Just go to Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, not a lot of time left, but uh, apparently Merriam-Webster says it's okay to end a sentence with a preposition. Um, Vas, I assume you do some writing. Uh, sorry, in my house where I grew up, that was never permitted. You know, I wanted to have something sassy where I ended the sentence that I said to you with a preposition, but this is actually not something that I police when I have to uh, evaluate the writing of others, but maybe I'm just focused on structure. How about two spaces after a period? When someone does that, I'm like, they're so smart. Like, that's just a signal to me that they're super smart and I'm out of my league. So I like, yeah, that's how I feel about this two spaces. I would you? like to quote Winston Churchill. This is the type of pedantry up with which I will not put. Thank you very much. <laughs> Communication is the key. Communication is the key. That's the goal. Good way to end. Thank you all. Great discussion. Courtney Betty, Vas Bednar and Jerry Agar.